good. Um, so what we're going to try to do is cover a little bit, uh, we, some of the stuff we covered yesterday. So I hope you'll have, kind of put your thinking caps on and remember some of the stuff that we talked about. And I'll just reintroduce myself to the rest of you who are new to this afternoon, who weren't here yesterday for our, uh, what, we did three sessions? Is that what we did? I think we did three sessions. Um, my name is Jim Wallace. I work as a uh, cold case homicide detective in Los Angeles County. As I said this morning, uh, my family, I've got a picture here. Oh, actually, this is kind of some of our casework, which you'll see later. And what I wanted to show you, there you go. This is my son and my dad. He, I went out and got that uniform back on. He squeezed it back on one last time from my son's academy graduation, and he was in town, you know, and so I said, well, do you want to, he says, let's do, it, do this, I, I've got my uniform shirt, but I don't have any pants that'll fit me anymore, I said, it's okay, come on into town, and we'll go to the, uh, you know, local uniform shop, and we'll get you a pair of pants, so then I had to find a, a Sam Brown for my partner, who's a bigger guy, who I could actually fit my dad, and we got them all suited up, I got a badge back on his chest, you can see the uniforms are slightly different, and uh, those days they had these white patches on the ends, and we had a whistle chain, because they actually had whistles when he was working, we don't have whistles anymore, so now we have things on our uh, Sam Brown that he didn't used to have, we have pepper spray and a taser and all this other stuff, right, which he didn't have, uh, but uh, we realized these white patches, which were glow-in-the-dark patches, were foolish because in the, they just gave your uh, bad guy two white dots to shoot between. <laughs> so we, we changed them now. They're dark blue. And uh, so this is my son. Now when he was skinny, he's been there for two years now, so he's nice and plump. No longer academy trained. So uh, but that's our family um, of the Wallaces who... Now look, we're going to talk a little bit about um, science and um, the relationship to Christianity and we could spend a lot of time just in Genesis 1. We're going to move through some bigger portions of the Old Testament together. Uh, because we talked yesterday about some things that are directly applicable to this issue of, is Genesis 1 compatible with well, what we see in science? And so let me just try to walk through. <coughs> Pardon me. I just never, you can never cough or sneeze when you have a microphone on, on your head. <coughs> Pardon me. Okay, this is my... Um, Gospel of Mark, I wanted to show you that when I first became a Christian, I was very concerned about the evidence in the Gospels, and I mentioned yesterday that one of the things I tried to do was to look at the Gospel of Mark based on a statement in the first century from a a bishop named Papias, and Papias said that Mark was actually scribing for the Apostle Peter. And that he was scribing the things that Peter had been taught by Jesus, and that then Peter was teaching to the Christians in Rome. And that Mark was simply scribing for Peter. And um, so I thought, well, that's true. I should be able to go back to Mark and discern if Peter's fingerprints are in Mark in a way that is powerful and unusual to the other Gospels, right? So I use this process we talked about yesterday called forensic statement analysis, and that's where we take a a statement from the guy we have in custody, and we examine it to see if they're telling us the truth. And we ask him what he did yesterday, the day of the murder, uh, from the point he got up in the morning until the time he went to bed. And then we use different colors to look at different issues, his use of pronouns, his use of tense, his use of certain kinds of evasive language, his use of contraction of time. You know, you might spend uh, four or five sentences describing what happened in 10 seconds. Why would you do that? Maybe it means something. And we try to look back and see if we can make something out of what he's saying. Did the same thing with the Gospel of Mark when I first was looking at Mark. 
and just use different colors to look at. And when I found something that was distinctly Petrine, in other words, it was an unusual uh, behavior or unusual inclusion that was related directly to Peter, I would mark it out with a P. And I simply did that through the entire gospel. When I got done, I was very um, interested to find that there are lots of things about Mark's gospel that are uniquely related to Peter. So for example, Mark never lets Peter look bad. Never. If Peter says something stupid in the other gospels, it's usually missing from Mark. As a matter of fact, or it's minimized. So you might have him say something like this. And then Peter said this stupid thing. Mark writes, and then Peter said this stupid thing, and all the other disciples agreed. That expression, and all the other disciples agreed, that's a Mark expression, because he's minimizing how bad Peter looks, always. So, for example, when you have two versions of Jesus walking on water, they're in Mark and in Matthew. In Matthew, Peter gets out of the boat and starts to sink, and Jesus kind of scolds him, right, and says, hey, in Mark, he doesn't even get out of the boat. You know, so you see a lot of this. Also, you see inclusions in, in Mark's gospel that are distinctly Petrine in the sense that he'll use pronoun use and say that uh, he, they came into to, um, uh, his hometown of Capernaum. Jesus came into his hometown of Capernaum. Well, G- Capernaum's not really Jesus' hometown, but it is Peter's hometown. And so you see a lot of kind of personal pronoun use that really belongs to Peter that's associated to somebody else, and you see this in Mark. So by examining pronouns and things like that, you really come away, I came away with great confidence that at least Papias was telling us the truth, that Peter seems to be a source for Mark in a way that he's not a source for the other writers. Anyway, I just wanted you to see that for me, this was all about trying to take a very kind of forensic approach to the, to the scripture as an unbeliever who really didn't trust it. And I do a lot, draw a lot of diagrams, and a lot of the early work that I did is what was in the book. This is what ended up becoming the book because it was just my own journey through the scriptures trying to figure out if it was true. Okay, all that being said, I grew up in the Star Trek generation, not that, that crazy Star This is the first original cast, okay? If you don't know who these guys are, you're not really a Trekkie. You don't know Star Trek unless you know William Shatner. The best James. Well, the new one's not bad, actually. You seen the new Star Treks? They're not bad. But they're not this guy, sorry. No one is as melodramatic as William Shatner. Anyway, the point is, I really thought that at some point, <clears throat> science would be able to answer all the questions like a Star Trek kind of a world, right? Where you'd have questions that you think you can't answer, but eventually science will do that for you. But even as an atheist, I had problems with certain parts of my worldview that I didn't think I could reconcile. So for example, I had a hard time reconciling how the universe came into being. When most of the science in the 60s and 70s, especially in the 60s and 70s, was pointing to a universe that had a beginning. How could it begin? The principle of causality we talked about yesterday seems to incline me toward things that have a beginning have some type of causal beginner. And then what could that causal beginner look like? I also had a problem with origin of life studies, which I still have a problem with both of these areas because I see nothing that's advanced the cause in either case to answer the question from a purely uh, philosophically natural position. How do I explain from an atheistic position how life comes to, uh, from, from uh, non-living chemicals. How do I get from here? Now, lots of studies have been done on this. RNA world studies have collapsed in the last two years. I really think that there's not any good reason to believe there's a naturalistic pers- um, explanation for this. 
But, I mean, granted, I was willing to say, hey, wait. No reason to rush to imaginary beings. We can wait. Science will eventually have an answer. Well, can you imagine telling your atheist friends that, hey, you know, I don't know how God could do this, but I'm just going to wait until I get to heaven and God will explain it to me? They would call that the God of the gaps. You believe something. Well, I've had a science of the gaps kind of a view in the past. I thought I'll just wait until some scientist told me. You Christians are waiting for God to tell you. I'm waiting for a scientist to tell me. And so really we're in the same position. Both of us as atheists and as Christians are trying to understand something from less than complete information. And that is what we do when we step out in faith. We are, all of us are doing the same thing. We're trusting in something for which we have less than complete information, but we think that the evidence we do have is at least pointing to the conclusion that's most reasonable. And so that's what I think we all do, whether you're a believer or not. So this is what I would hope would be the, um, the uh, truth of it. I figured that naturalism and evolution would eventually explain everything, but that really wasn't uh, my experience in reality. Now, let's take a look at just Genesis for a second, this book, this first book of Moses, the book of beginnings. And if you look at it, the most powerful verse in this entire book that becomes the most troublesome for someone like me as as an atheist was the very first verse. In the beginning, God created. That's the thing that really was dramatic for me. In the beginning, God created. Now, if we just stop right there, from what we talked about yesterday, Do we have any good reason to believe that we can account for this in Scripture in a way that resonates with science? Think about it. The first part is this, in the beginning. In the beginning, God created. Now, we talked yesterday about this first principle called the cosmological argument, right? And it basically goes like this. The universe has a beginning. We talked about that as one of our talks yesterday. Do we have good scientific reason to believe and good philosophical reasons to believe that the universe actually does have a beginning and that nothing can explain this beginning from a naturalistic perspective? If it's quantum theories, inflationary models of the universe, if it's any kind of oscillating model of the universe or steady state model of the universe, no one can explain how we can begin this beginning. And we really have good physical evidence to point that the universe has a beginning. Now, we know from causality that anything that has a beginning must be caused by something else. And we talked yesterday about how that thing that caused it can't also have a cause, because if that thing has a cause, then we're looking for the cause of it, and the cause of it, and we have an infinite regress problem. So all of us, whether we're Christians and theists or we're atheists alike, we're all looking for the first uncaused cause. What could it be? Make sense? And so we said, well, this cause must be eternal and uncaused, and therefore we say that this cause, we would, if you describe it, it has to be something that created all space, time, and matter. So it has to be immaterial, non-spatial, atemporal. It has to be powerful enough to cause everything from nothing, and it has to be uncaused, eternal. What's it starting to sound like? We end up with some view of theism or deism. The next part we see in this verse is that God created. In the beginning, God created. And when I look at this issue about God creating, it strikes me that this verse of Scripture is really a pretty cool verse of Scripture in Acts 3. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life. And we talked yesterday 
about information in the DNA, remember? That it seems to speak of a intelligent, an intelligent author because we've never seen an example anywhere in the history of science in which information comes from anything other than an intelligent source. And we simply ask the question, is DNA information or is it just data? Is it just random? Well, it seems to inform a message that is then decoded through a process. And when you see that happening, you know you've got information. So DNA is information, so we come up with really this issue of authorship, and we looked at the teleological argument yesterday. And we talked about, hey, human artifacts are like watches. We would not see a watch on the ground and assume that it came through some natural process. We would say there's probably a watchmaker because of all the intricacy, the irreducible complexity, and the specificity that we see in the watch. And we talked about several uh, aspects of human biology yesterday in which we see the same kinds of complexity, irreducible complexity, specificity, design features. We're simply saying, hey, you would never think a watch was came about through natural processes, and our universe and world seems to have similarities to this kind of complexity. Therefore, it's reasonable to infer a designer for these things as well. And we went through all of that yesterday. Do you remember? Okay. Now, for some of you who weren't here, I feel like I want to go through all of it over again, but we're not going to do that. We're going to do something slightly different. So, I think this is how we arrive at this kind of an argument in which we say, hey, there's good reason to believe that Genesis 1 aligns with the science we see in our world. But still, I'm always struck by the statements of, of atheists or non-believers who have scoffed at the Bible like this statement. The Bible may be truth, but it's not the whole truth and nothing but the truth or this wonderful uh, statement. The Bible has noble poetry in it, some clever fables and some blood-drenched history and a wealth of obscenity and upwards of a thousand lies. Or the skeptics in our own time who look at the things in Genesis and say, I'm sorry to take a sledgehammer to such so small and fragile a nut But I have to do so because more than 40% of the American people believe literally in the story of Noah's Ark. We should be able to ignore them and get on with our science. But we can't afford to because they control school boards. They homeschool their children to deprive them of access to proper science teachers. And they include many members of the United States Congress, some state governors and even presidential and vice presidential candidates. You silly Americans, I swear, he's British. You folks are crazy. You actually let nut jobs like this run for office. You actually elect them into office. People who believe in this mythology out of the Bible. But you'll see what's interesting is, as time goes by, I see the criticism is moving from Genesis 1, which deals with origins, because I really think that that evidence favors us, to other aspects of Genesis like the flood which I think he thinks is an easier attack to make on Christianity because it's hard to make the attack on a created universe or a universe that has a beginning. Most of the work is, this is the gentleman who refused to debate William Lane Craig. Now, William Lane Craig is a Christian philosopher and thinker who has done a lot of work on the origin of the universe called the Kalam Cosmological Argument. And he's gone around the country and around the world debating for the last 20 years Anybody who is willing to debate him, and he's debated all the best. And typically, he's really good in two ways. He knows his material, but he's also an excellent debater. And so last year, when he decided to do a tour of England, he asked Richard Dawkins if he would debate him, and Dawkins refused him. Ah, who is this William Lane Craig guy? He's nobody. Really? He's the guy. He's the guy that all of your peers have been getting spanked by and don't want to see again. 
like Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris. These guys had not, did not have a good run with him. So Dawkins refused to see him. But I think he knows that the argument that we make from cosmological, the cosmological argument is so sound that I see them moving in this direction. It's really about Noah's Ark, if you believe that nonsense. So I thought today what we would do is just focus on the nonsense we call Noah's Ark. Make sense? And let's just see if there's anything about Noah's Ark story that is so unreasonable that we have to reject it. And really with it, everything that the Bible might ever say about anything scientific. Make sense? Let's take a look. Now, what I'm talking about here, of course, is the story we're all familiar with, right? And you can see that sometimes this story seems so silly on its face that nobody who's a non-Christian thinks they have to even talk about how silly it is. Instead, just let me say Noah's Ark, and most of you will get how ridiculous that is. You know, the whole world is covered with water, and all the animals are placed on one boat and somehow survive, and then these are the animals, and the entire world is repopulated by these animals and just the three sons of Noah? Think about it. Doesn't that just on its face sound ridiculous? I remember one time, Hitchens was debating um, William Lane Craig, and in order to defeat William Lane Craig, he simply said this. At some point in the debate, he says, it's just utter foolishness. Dr. Craig, do you believe that Jesus was born of a virgin? Yes, I do. I rest my case. Just the idea is so preposterous that there isn't even a a legitimate examination of that kind of thing, like Noah's Ark. If you believe in this, I don't need to say any more. Anybody who's got a right mind knows this is mythology. And if you believe in that stuff, you you have started to take leave of your senses. And I think that illustrations like this don't help us, (laughs) you know? These kinds of illustrations actually appear in adult publications. This is not an uh, illustration for children. This is an illustration that is an adult Bible study. And so you have here, you know, you got some, some of the animals, the parrots are hanging off the side, got the elephants hanging out with the giraffes. You know, you got, it's like, can you see how an atheist can look at this kind of thing and say, this is retarded? This is what they're doing. They're looking at us and they're, they're demeaning us based on what we believe out of the Old Testament. So we've got to ask a question. Is this even reasonable at all? Now, what's interesting is a story of an ark and a flood exists across almost every culture. There are over 200 cultural stories involving a, a flood and a surviving family in a boat. Now, to be fair, I think we can kind of bring them all back to an original source or close to an original source. Let's take a look at these right now. So they're all over the planet. And here they are. For example, we have the earliest ones right here in the area of Egypt, Persia, and Turkey. And we also have them uh, away from the area in uh, Europe. There are several um, flood stories. In addition, you have them as far away as China and Siberia and India and Thailand. And you also have them here on the islands. You have them in Australia and New Zealand. You have them in the uh, Pacific Islands. And so you have a number of these stories which are, are, are legendary, are, are, are continue to be uh, illustrated and talked about, and we have some very ancient illustrations of some of these all over the globe, uh, in Central America, and of course in South America. You've got these all over the place. Now, that doesn't really prove anything, but it is interesting, isn't it? If we're making a circumstantial case, I might want to include it as part of my circumstantial case. Now, if you look at the kind of nature of these, there they are, located all over the world. If you look at the nature of these, 88% include a favored family. 
some family set that is somehow survives the flood. They are favored and put on the boat. Uh, they are warned in advance in most cases. In addition to that, uh, there's always described a universal flood. Now, the issue always comes up when you're talking about the flood. Do you, Jim, believe in a, a flood that is global? Or do you believe in a flood that is local and destroys everything that is in the known world rather than everything that is in the world world? And Christians are divided on this. Some Christians think there is good textual evidence in the Bible to support a global flood. Other Christians look at the same exact texts and come away with a different textual reading and say, no, it means it is a universally devastating flood of the known world. But we all agree on one thing. Whatever the nature of the flood is, it is universally destructive. And that's not unusual in all the global stories we have. They're almost always universally destructive and the survivors, they survive in some boat of some nature. And the animals are an important part of the story in which they are actually... So if you look at this, just look at the actual outline. This outline is pretty um, clear, isn't it? I mean, it sounds like the flood story. It sounds like Noah's story. Now, of course, the, the most ancient stories are all around the area of the Mediterranean. So it's just quite possible that this story just traveled with people groups that migrated to other parts of the world. But interestingly, there is some cultural memory of a flood story that goes with them. And it may change over time, but it exists in all these cultures. But in addition to that, I think sometimes the rocks will speak to you as well. And so you'll see um, that, not only like this, where you've got things written on the rocks, I mean more in terms of the strata and the things we see in rock layers. And lots of scientists, whether you like it or dislike this kind of work that's being done, and I sometimes am neutral on it, but I think it is important to review, you'll see that lots of folks will uh, say that we see uh, across the, uh, the globe areas in which the sediment layers seem to be most consistent with uh, some type of large movement of water or a large existence of water. So when that recedes, you get these stratas here that you see from the silt layers that were first moved by the uh, flooding waters to begin with. So you'll see this kind of stratification all over the place. And people will often look at this and say, this seems to be best attributed to flooding or flood waters. Now look, let me just review something we talked about yesterday. Sometimes when stories are, are, go through a period of time, they change. And it's tempting to kind of jettison anything at the beginning because you see changes over time. If I've got 40 uh, flood stories and they're all kind of different, or 200 flood stories and they're all kind of different, doesn't that mean I shouldn't trust any of them? No, not necessarily, because sometimes that, those changes over time are all pointing back to an occurrence that really did occur, but people's cultures and their, their, their own desires will change the story. Let me give you an example of this. Here is a, a scene of a, a murder from 1984. This young lady was murdered in her, fresh, in her uh, junior year of, of high school. And uh, she was murdered by somebody um, who had red hair. I know that. Had red hair. But when you ask people today their memory of her, you get all kinds of different variations to the story. So sometimes people, one person, for example, was certain that she was killed by a friend from school. I, 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 I sampled every DNA of every person that she even had close to red hair that she went to school with. I did 34 guys. 34 guys I DNA sampled, and none of those folks from her school was the killer. 
Another woman told me that she was sure that it was a coworker named Jason. Well, I did that work, and he's, he's also clean. And another person thought that it was a crazy neighbor down the street. I thought that was a great one, actually. When I learned about this guy, and he's just like three doors down, I thought, oh, bingo, I got my guy, because he was a nut job, okay? <laughs> but I went out, and he was in a psychiatric ward, a, a custody facility. He had been arrested, and he was in a custodial psychiatric ward in California. And I went out there and swabbed him, and he wasn't the guy either. Um, one person thought that she was strangled, and another person said, and I knew what had happened, I'd seen the scene, okay, but the people on the outside hadn't seen the scene. They had good details that Karen had been murdered on this date and this particular way, but over the years, their memory of what they wanted to be true or what some things they kind of added to the story, you have to sift through this. She was not murdered with a hatchet, by the way. So you have to kind of sift through the variations that occur over time. But just the fact that I have variations in the accounts I get today does not mean there wasn't a murder. Does not mean that Karen wasn't murdered. Of course she was. But what happens is you have to sift through it to see what is really true and what's not true. Right? So when we see a lot of global flood stories, and they're slightly different, I don't think it's reason for us to jettison the original story. Is there an original event that people were talking about for centuries? That's really the question. And that's what to do with all these cases. We've got to sort through the facts. Now we're going to talk today about the flood story. And if you look at it in the Hebrew Scriptures, we know it pretty well. It's the flood of Noah. We see it in Genesis 6, verse 9, all the way into Genesis 8. But did you know it's not the only ancient flood story? There's other ancient flood stories that maybe even be more ancient than Noah's story. For example, there is this story from the Epic of Gilgamesh. It exists on tablet 11. A lot of similarities. And even preceding this is the flood story of Atrahasis. We have ancient accounts of a flood, some of which I think you could easily argue predate the account in the Bible. So let's take a look at this on our timeline. You know I'm good for timelines from yesterday. So here we go. Let's start off. This is uh, the present day. This is way back when. So here we go. We know we have some accounts in, around the globe of a flood story. They exist in different regions of the world. And there are different accounts all over the globe. Fine. But there is a more ancient account which we see written in the Hebrew Bible. The problem, of course, is that there are other accounts. Now, it turns out that the account of Gilgamesh actually dates pretty close to the same time, and some would actually say that it actually follows the ancient account from the Hebrew Bible. But it's got so much source information from the Atrahasis story, and the Atrahasis story precedes it. Got it? So now we've got our flood story in the middle of a number of flood stories, and we're no longer the source. So lots of folks would say, hey, you, know, you can't trust that Bible because it's just copying stuff from other cultures. It copied the flood story from the Epic of Gilgamesh, or because it had access to the Epic, or it copied it from the prior, prior story in Atrahasis. Now, that to me, I think we've got to stop and think about it for a second. When Moses writes in Genesis, writes the book of Genesis, Is he writing as an eyewitness? Think about it. Was Moses there in Genesis 1? Was Moses there in Genesis 6? Was he there at the time of Abraham? 
Isaac, Jacob. No, Moses is in what book? Where, where does he show up? Where's his story? It's in Exodus, the next book. All of, Atra, all of uh, Genesis is an account that Moses gives, not from his own personal experience. So that means he's recording events. All these books are recording events of something that occurred earlier. The only question is, which of these ancient accounts should we trust? They're slightly different. Why should we trust Moses' version of the ancient advent? Or instead of, for example, Atrahasis? Why do we trust the Bible more than the other documents? And that's what we're going to talk about today. Why should we trust what the Bible says about this event instead of other ancient accounts that occurred before it? And can we trust the Bible for what it describes in terms of science? Okay, first of all, I always like to start by saying that the Bible is not a science manual. It is not intended to teach you science. It should be consistent with science, but it was not written for the purpose of teaching you how we got here. It was written to teach you about our relationship to God and our need for a Savior. Now, along the way, you're going to have to describe how we got here to do that, right? But that's the real purpose. So, for example, if you're looking to fix your typewriter or learn how to do your... Um, laundry or how to do any other set of, 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 of things you want to do today, you're not going to be able to go to your Bible to get that answer. That's not why the Bible was written. So why we would think, for example, that we should be able to get strong answers about uh, any number of scientific things, why is DNA not described in the Bible, for example? Well, because it's not the purpose of the Bible. So I think we've got to be sure about what it is the Bible has been intended to do. Now let's take a look at the Bible and see what it says and see if it's consistent with science. Make sense? Okay. So here's the first thing. Uh, the first thing I was struck with was that, 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 that if you look at Genesis 1, the order of events in Genesis 1 is amazingly, amazingly similar to what we see in science today. So where other ancient texts will say that perhaps the world was burnt out of the mouth of a fish or uh, some other crazy mythological account for the origins of, of the earth, the, the Jewish scriptures actually get the order pretty darn good. Land is separated from water. Life begins in the water. Life then begins on the land. And man is the last arrival. And as we look at the scientific discoveries of the last 2,000 years, we seem to still have this order of events. Which is not bad, considering the Bible is not intended to give you an, a precise moment-by-moment -moment account. Although it does give you an account. But what's the purpose of the account? Is really the question. So if we look at this and compare it to others, let's take a look at some scripture together. Isaiah. He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. Do you see any hidden science in that verse? Something about the world that is unknown to the ancients that is described in scripture. Do you see anything in that verse? Yes, the circle of the earth. Proverbs, when he prepared the heavens, I was there. When he set a compass, a circle upon the face of the depth. I've had so many people say that they argue that, you know, the Bible teaches a flat earth. Really? Why? Well, the four corners of the earth. Okay. So, and describing the directions in which you might travel, the directions in which a certain thing has spread, it's often said that they've spread to the whole four corners of the earth. I don't think it's meant to say that there are four corners to the earth. It's meant to say there are four directions to the compass. But, I get it, you might say that, but you see over and over again, verses in scripture that describe the earth as a sphere, as the shape of the earth is actually correct. 
in Scripture. Let me um, offer another verse, and you tell me if you see the hidden Scripture, the hidden science. Remember, we're looking for things that the ancients would not have known. Now, I think as an ancient, you could know this. You could know that the earth is, is round as an ancient. How would you know? You can't get above it. You, know, you can't like, see it from space. But you could know that it's round. How would you know? Now, you really can't get, I don't, it's hard to get a view that what you see the curvature. But what if you were to observe an eclipse or saw the shadow of the earth cross the face of the moon? Then you would see the curvature of, this, of the earth. So I'm not all that moved necessarily by this discovery, okay? But I just want to say it's there. Let's take a look at the next one. Where's the hidden science in this verse? Job 26, he spreads out the northern skies over empty space. He suspends the earth over nothing. Do you see any hidden science? Do you see anything about that that seems like it's almost out of place for the ancients to know? Well, how would they know that the earth is suspended in space, being held up by nothing? I mean, you realize that other ancients had a different view of this, right? I mean, some ancients had a view that it was either on the back of Atlas. Some ancients had a view that it was on the back of a, a giraffe or on the back of a turtle. The idea that the earth is suspended in space, being held up by nothing, is a scary idea if you think about it. Because it implies you know something. Because think about it. They're thinking about it from gravity. Okay, we're, we're, being held up. We're, we're being held up by the earth. What's holding the earth up? And so you, people would, ancients would typically describe it, being held up by something else. But not our ancients. Our ancients describe it as being suspended in the cosmos. Could be a good, good guess. Lucky guess. But I think it is interesting, considering all the other competing, including the competing uh, creation stories from Atrahasis and Gilgamesh. Very different accounts of how the earth begins, how the universe begins, and how the earth is suspended. Do you see any hidden science here? If you were here yesterday, you probably already see it, but that's okay. It is I who made the earth and created mankind upon it. My own hand stretched out the heavens. I marshaled their starry hosts. Now, I know we talked about this yesterday. Hey, did you see here? I've got a period right there that looks like a star. That should even be in there. Got to change the whole dang video. But this idea that, that God is stretching the cosmos, that stretches the heavens, is an interesting way to put it. It's a uniquely Jewish idiom. Why would you say it that way? Well, maybe because you understand something about the expanding universe in which we actually live. The universe is expanding. So again, it could be luck. Just got lucky. Do you see any hidden science in this one? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Now, I've already prefaced, you know, you should see it right away, right? This is an interesting claim. It's a unique claim to um, Jewish and Christian theology in the sense that it describes what? A beginning. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, not of the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God designed, destined for our glory before time began. So once again, we have this idea of a beginning, a beginning of all space, time, and matter, which is not true of every ancient cosmology. It's not even true of modern 
religious cosmologies. We talked about yesterday. Mormons don't believe that. Mormons believe there is no beginning to the universe or any beginning to the line of gods. God's got a father who's got a father who's got a father who's got a father. And it goes on infinitely. So they have an infinite universe in which there are an infinite number of gods of which the God that you worship, the God of this world, is simply the son of another God. So it's not that everyone has this kind of, so it sounds, we take it so much for granted that we see this language before time, as if, you know, we know that's true, but how would the ancients know that it's true? That's the question. Do you see the hidden science? Oh, this is all about inflation, about the cosmological, we talked about the cosmological singularities, we talked about the beginning of space, time, and matter. The Bible happens to get that right. Do you see any hidden um, science in this verse in Genesis 15? He took him outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. So there's a multitude of stars being described. And then he says, and Jeremiah says this, and do not be terrified by the signs of the heavens, although the nations are terrified by them. And you see this over and over again in the Old Testament, this idea that when you look at the stars, you're not to be frightened of them. Why would he say that? Because the ancients thought of the stars as gods. And even Mithras worship was all about an idea that there were gods in the stars who were battling. And as they battled, you were worshiping these gods who were battling in the stars. Perseus, Taurus, all the... uh, uh, Astronomy, uh, astrology, signs of the astrology are all gods in the eyes of Mithras worship. So he's saying, hey, these aren't gods. These are stars. I've, I've created this stuff. You're not to be afraid of this stuff. And although we take it for granted, that's a really unusual concept in ancient thinking. But I think that the Bible does correctly describe the cosmos. It's not as though we have an ancient Bible and we've got to figure out how to explain to the world that, hey, you know, uh, the stars really aren't gods because our Bible says they are. Lots of other ancient texts say they're gods. Our Bible does not. Do you see the hidden science here? We've got several on just water we're going to do in a row. The valleys of the sea were exposed and the foundations of the earth laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord and the blast of breath from his nostrils. By the way, does that mean we think that God's got big nostrils? So I want us to read scripture the way it's intended for us to read it. We'll talk about that in a minute. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses, the valleys of the deep? See, we read right past this stuff like it's no big deal. But that actually is a pretty big deal. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The reason why it's a big deal is because most ancient thinkers believed that the water, the seas, had a very soft, bowl-like surface. They didn't understand that the ocean floor is full of valleys and mountains, that there are some mountains on the ocean floor which are much taller than the tallest mountain out of the ocean. Valleys are much deeper than some of the valleys we have above water. The idea that the ocean floor would be filled with valleys and mountains is not universally accepted in antiquity. As a matter of fact, it's not universally accepted until about 400 years ago. Until 400 years ago, people were still saying that the valleys, that the ocean floor was a soft bowl. But this ancient book somehow has got a way of, it could be a mistake, it could be a coincidence, but it does get it right. 
Here's another one. So this is about uh, the ocean floor. I think it correctly describes the ocean floor. Now, by the way, we talk a little bit about reading the Bible. People will say, well, Jim, do you read the Bible literally? No. I don't think anyone reads it literally. We don't believe that God's got nostrils. In the Psalms where he's got wings that he protects his kids, I don't think we believe that God's got wings. There are some uses of language which are not intended to be interpreted literally. They are poetic. They are meant to be allegorical or they are meant to be illustrative of something bigger by using a parable or using an allegory or using a metaphor. So I want to try to figure out what, how is it that the author wants me to read this and read it the way he intended it to be read. That's what I'm trying to do. And if that's what you mean by literal, great. But if you mean, do I take every word and I go, okay, well, he's got nostrils and his breath, those big old nostrils of his form. No, I don't believe that necessarily, okay? Do you see any hidden science in this verse? In the six, this is uh, Genesis 7, in the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day all the springs of the great deep burst forth and the floodgates of the heavens were opened. Huh, springs of the great deep. That's interesting. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and livestock that were with him in the ark and he sent a wind over the earth and the waters receded and all the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heavens had been closed and the rain had stopped falling from the sky. Maybe this expression springs of the deep is just meant to be metaphorical also. I think that's possible. I was there when he set the heavens in place, when he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep. We have springs and fountains of the deep. You know, it wasn't until about 1970 that we even had any evidence there were such things. And then off the coast of South America in 1970, we discovered the first ocean spring. So I think this is something that I don't know how antiquity, people of antiquity would actually be able to identify or think of such things. And maybe it's just lucky. They happen to use some illustrative language that just happens to coincide with what really is. But these things start to add up. They're always lucky. Here it says, Our Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name on all the earth. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, you made him man ruler over the works of your hands and put everything under his feet, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, all that swim in the paths of the sea. That's an interesting expression. That's in Psalm 8 through those verses. That's a really interesting, the paths of the sea. As a matter of fact, that's so interesting that an early oceanographer uh, just in the last 200 years, decided he would actually investigate this because there was no science being done and no one had established ocean currents at all. No one knew anything about ocean currents. It was the 1800s and the first oceanographer to discover ocean currents did it on the basis of that verse. He had been sailing his entire life and he decided to say, well, what are the paths of the sea that are mentioned in the psalm? So he began to chart the paths of the sea and he discovered that there were tons of them. But he didn't even know they were there until he started to look for them on the basis of that ancient verse. Again, they're just awfully lucky. They're so darn lucky all the time. How about this? He wraps up the waters in his clouds, yet the clouds do not burst under their weight. Now, we're going to talk about a series of verses here in which uh, ancients seem to be describing the movement of water. 
He draws up the drops of water, which distill as rain to the streams. The clouds pour down their moisture, and abundant showers fall on mankind. Okay. And the wind blows to the south and turns to the north, and round and around it goes, ever returning on its course. All the streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. I think this all looks pretty rudimentary for us, pretty fundamental. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. So you see a lot of this in the Old Testament and Genesis and other places. In Job, probably one of the most ancient books, God made decrees, rules for the rain. And he set away for the lightning of the thunder. Rules for the actual uh, weather patterns. And why? And who calls for the waters of the sea? He who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth, the Lord is his name. So there seems to be a, repeatedly through the prophets and through the Old Testament a description of something that we know today as what? The hydrological cycle. Now, we look at this and we say, oh, so, so what? I mean, duh, you watch this. I mean, is that what's remarkable? Well, think about what ancients had access to. I'm sure they were able to watch this and watch this, and they watched this, and they saw this, but how did they know about this? You can see this stuff. This stuff, we really learned about a lot about this stuff in the last 500 years. How do they know in 2,000 years ago, they couldn't see it? It's just interesting, they happened to get this cycle right. How about this? Where's the hidden science? In the beginning, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the works of your hand. Uh, they, per- they will perish. Remember yesterday, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like clothing. You will, cha- they, you will change and they will be discarded. They will wear out like clothing you're going to change and be discarded. They'll wear out like a garment. In the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. This is just Hebrew's paraphrase of that same Uh, Old Testament passage, they will perish, but you remain, they will all wear out like a garment. And what is that describing? Second law of thermodynamics, but I think it's interesting that an ancient would look at the heavens, which appear to be completely unchanging. If you look at the heavens today, and you said to your grandfather on the phone, hey, I saw Orion tonight, he would know exactly what you're talking about, wouldn't he? Because Orion hasn't changed since he was a kid. I can't imagine why the ancients would think the heavens are wearing out on the basis of observation. Because they didn't wear out in front of them. But I think this does accurately describe what we call the second law of thermodynamics. Just got it right again by accident. Now I want to kind of um, talk about what I think is the most fascinating hidden science in the Bible. And uh, it is actually in one of the oldest books of the Bible. Because the oldest book of the Bible, if you look at it, we often think it's Genesis. But what do you think it really is? Lots of research has been done on this. There's actually a book in the Bible that's probably older than Genesis. Job, yeah. It just so happens that Job mentions a lot of things that are unique to the early history of the earth that no other book mentions. And it happens to be the oldest book in the Bible. So here's a verse. Let's take a look at it. It's in Job 38. 
God talking to Job, kind of spanking him, saying, who do you think you are, Job? Can you bind the sweet influences of Pleiades or loose the bands of Orion? Canst thou bring forth Maseroth in his season? Or canst thou guide Arcturus with his sons? So he's kind of challenging Job. Remember how Job was kind of getting cocky, right? And God was kind of saying, who do you think you are? I'm God. You're not God. You're challenging my ways. You think you're smarter than me? Can you do this stuff? I can do this stuff. You can't do this stuff. You're nobody. Okay, what is he talking about there? What are these words he's using? Well, he's talking about constellations, and he's actually describing correctly the nature of those three constellations from a God perspective. Let's take a look. Canst thou bind the sweet influences of Pleiades or loose the bands of Orion? Canst thou bring forth Maseroth in his season? Or canst thou guide Arcturus with his sons. Now we know Pleiades, that's a, that's a constellation. We know Orion. We know Arcturus. We don't know what Maseroth is. Uh, lots of linguists think that Maseroth is simply a, a word that describes constellations in general, but I don't think it's the case, but we'll, we can debate that later. But the point is, we just don't know what that Maseroth one is. But we do know what these three are. Let's see if what Job writes about these three constellations is actually true. So the first one here is this... Um, the um, Pleiades. Let's separate that out first. Canst thou bind the sweet influences of Pleiades? There's the constellation of Pleiades. And it's almost as if God is saying here, hey, Job, you know, you think you're so good, uh, highfalutin and so smart. Do you keep Pleiades together? I can keep Pleiades together. You think you can keep Pleiades together? You can't do it. Only I can do it. What's he talking about? Keep Pleiades together. Well, as it turns out, Pleiades, we know today, it's a very unusual constellation because it looks like a cluster of about, what, six or seven stars, right? But it's not. It's actually groups of over 250 stars in those seven positions. They look like seven singular stars, really bright, but they're clusters in the line of vision to our position on Earth. Make sense? Now, what's interesting about these is that these are all traveling in the same direction. So from our perspective on Earth, we will never lose this positioning of the constellation. It will always look like that. So when he says, can you keep this together? I can bind Pleiades. Can you bind Pleiades? And it turns out he knows something about this constellation that I don't know how any ancient could know. Let's take a look at the next one. We've got Pleiades there. Now let's take a look at the bands of Orion. He says, can thou loose the bands of Orion? And here's Orion. So it's almost like he's saying here, you know, Job, can you, can you keep this stuff together? This is the band of Orion right here. It's the three stars in the middle. See it? That's the band of Orion. So it's kind of like he's saying, you know, can you think you can keep these together? These are the ancient stars that we know by these names. He said, I can keep those, or I can loosen them. It's up to me. I can do it. As a matter of fact, these three stars will be loosened. They're unlike the Pleiades. These three are actually a cluster of three stars who are heading in three different directions. So what you're going to see is eventually this star, these two will come together and form what's called a naked eye double, and this other one will actually move off to the side. So we won't have Orion in that shape. So unlike Pleiades, this will not stay bound. This will be loosened. 
the last one here is an Arcturus. Can you guide Arcturus with his sons? I can take him anywhere I want. Arcturus actually is this little uh, inconveniently placed star in the crotch of this uh, constellation. <laughs> okay? And this is a, a really unusual star because this star is huge by comparison to our sun and massive in terms of its gravitational forces. It's thousands of times more massive. So this thing is like a runaway train. It goes wherever it wants, and it goes a lot faster than anything else in its class. Compare this, for example, to the rate of our sun. A lot faster. And it's massive, which means it's constantly messing with the gravitational field of anything it gets close to. This thing is a runaway train that's going anywhere it wants to go. It's a rogue. It just so happens it seems to be described perfectly. Now let's go back to our starting point for a second. We talked about the ancient Hebrew scripture, and we questioned whether or not it could be telling us something accurate about the past related to this scientific issue of could a flood, either locally destructive or globally destructive, but clearly universally destructive, have occurred. And as I'm trying to figure out which account I should trust, and I know there are two other ancient accounts, I have to assess each account internally, right? Is the account reliable for other things that might have scientific connotations, scientific values, scientific information? So I had to look at these contents of these books, and when I examine these based on all the issues we just described today, these issues are not correctly described in these two ancient texts. So as I look at them and say, can I find good information about any of this stuff in other ancient texts? Well, that's the problem. I can't, but I can in the ancient Jewish scripture. So if I'm going to trust one story over the other, now I can still reject the story if I want, but I'm going to trust one story over the other, I'm going to be far more inclined to trust the Hebrew scripture for this than I am for these other ancient models because look at how much else it gets right that it really shouldn't know about. Right? And here you've got Moses writing about something that really he didn't experience firsthand. So if it's right in these areas, I'm inclined to suggest that I can at least step, take a step with it on the issue of the flood. I can also take a step with it in terms of what it describes in Genesis 1. Could everything have come from nothing through an act of creative authorship of God? Yeah, I think so. Now, we're ending a little bit early, so we've got time for questions. And those of you who have been here for the last couple of days, this is a good time to ask any question, any objection you have, anything you think is troubling you about Genesis 1 or about anything else we talked about this weekend. Now's a good time. It's not like, we, like I haven't heard these questions before. We get them all the time. So please use this to answer your questions about either the relationship between God and science or the reliability of the scriptures. Anything we talked about this weekend. Remember we said this about yesterday, we'll do it again. Oh, got a first question. Don't have to go to question two. We can stay in question one. Go ahead. Uh, let me ask you this. Why are we, involved, uh, why are we getting involved in the word universe? Mm-hmm. I don't think they, I mean, if I want to relate uh, Bible, whatever, uh, Genesis 1, mm-hmm. I don't have to think about the universe at all. I just think it says the Spirit of God was over 
and they got some mineral water. Yes. And they want the earth. So from there, they, I, I think they, I can uh, dissociate myself from the universe. Right. Right, right, right. I understand. Well, because it's that first verse. It's true that we could start our investigation with the earth and just start from there. But the first verse of Genesis says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And when the heavens in this use, in the Hebrew, heavens can mean a lot of things, right? It could just mean the atmosphere over where I'm standing. It could mean the sky. But this word for the heavens is also used repeatedly in the Old Testament for the abode of the stars, where the stars are. So we have to ask ourselves, I think God is clearly saying here, he is not just the creator of the earth and the, you know, the oxygen above the earth, he's the creator, and this is why he's gonna move quickly to the creation of the sun, the moon, those things that are out there, outside our atmosphere. So that's why I think for me, I think that most people who would, let's put it this way, even if I was not, if I was, I was not willing to say this is about the universe, I think that most skeptics who come to the text would push us because of the use of this word elsewhere by Moses in the Pentateuch to mean the abode of the stars. So we have to at least be ready, ready to, I think, to uh, answer that objection. Even if you and I said, you know what, that's not a problem for me. I don't even think God's talking about that here. But I want to have an answer for those who think he is talking about that here. That make sense? Yes. The uh, book of Job is actually, if you look from the Hebrew standpoint, mm-hmm. it's part of the literature. And the literature, yes. you can uh, write any, any, I don't want to call it fantasy or whatever sure. you want to write. Sure. Okay. So the thing is, uh, the, the story about Job, I don't want to, I know, mm-hmm. uh, it's not necessarily how it was, because sure. it, it bothered me also to say, how would it be? Okay, so let's look at it this way. That's a good point. That's a great point. The idea that if Job is really meant to be, uh, what if it's not a historical narrative? In other words, you could look at Job and you could say, well, is it a historical narrative like the Gospels? Or is it more kind of figurative literature like um, other stories that are really intended to to teach a lesson but aren't necessarily true? Now, we could debate on that. I probably have a different view than you on that. That's okay. Let's just stay with the view that you hold. Let's say we held that this was really a story intended for a good purpose. Not really literally true. Fine. So let's say we take another story like that, like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. Goldilocks and the Three Bears, we don't think that those three bears probably were living in a house with beds different sizes and different bowls of porridge. But we can learn something about the culture in which that was written in the sense that apparently that culture ate porridge and was familiar with the idea of porridge for breakfast. And that that culture also apparently slept in beds because they were familiar with the idea of sleeping in beds. So even if this is allegorical and we're looking at the issue of the Pleiades, Orion, and Arcturus, it's clear that someone writing the story had inside information. Even if he's only inserting it in a more allegorical story to make a moral point, he has good information that we ought to look at and say, wow, how would he know that? How would the author of, of the Goldilocks story know that they ate porridge? I guess he must have lived there or he had inside information. How would the author of Job know that about Orion and Arcturus? And You see, he must have had inside information. So even if it is simply all allegorical fun, 
you're stuck with the evidence of the, of the uh, constellations. Good questions. Let's go another level. Come on, just do good. Be really. Got it. Yes, I agree. This is, this is, you guys are probably all familiar with Dawkins, who we showed up here, right? The Dawkins actually is always, you make one stupid statement on, uh, you know, a movie, and suddenly you get to put up that the rest of your life, right? So he was interviewed on, uh, what was the movie, Jason? Um, Expelled. Yeah, and he gets on Expelled, and Dawkins says, you know, yes, the origin of life is tough. You know, I, I feel for Dawkins in that sense. I think, you know, he, it was not as though he's saying, I, Richard Dawkins, advocate the idea that all life came from aliens. He was simply kind of thinking out loud and kind of throwing out some ideas, and he says in this movie, hey, you know, maybe it's, uh, it could have come from other, uh, some other source out in space, the seeds of life. I don't think he means that little green men got here and started something and left. I think he means that the initial... Um, ingredients needed for life, if they aren't present through some kind of natural process on earth, could have been delivered to earth accidentally through some meteor strikes or something that brings life to the planet from then which, the problem of course is all that does, right, is it pushes the problem back one level. We still have a problem with where did that come from? And apparently that is something that's already life. It's beyond the inanimate chemistry that we talk about, right? It's something that actually is, is in route to something else. The question is, how do you get to there? That's the question all of us have. You know, what is it that brings immaterial matter to life? And man, we could argue, well, we can't explain it here on Earth, so we're going to go to another source. It happens there, then it comes here. Well, that problem is still going to be, how did it happen there? And we're still on the same laws of physical laws of the universe. And whatever physical laws of the universe apply to Earth, they're going to apply to other worlds too for carbon-based life forms, Right? So I think the problem is just over there now, and we haven't solved it. But I feel bad for Dawkins because I know that he, he said this and he got recorded and it's on every YouTube short video. Look how stupid Richard Dawkins, well, I don't think Richard Dawkins is stupid at all. I think like all of us, you can say something dumb and have it exploited. I'm sure that my time is coming. So <laughs> you never make fun of others when your time is coming. Do you want me to follow up? Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, after the water subsides. Yes. And then it says, uh, the, what's in the vegetation? Mm-hmm. So, doesn't that thing imply to some extent that the, world, uh, that the earth was populated before? Because they, once the thing starts to grow right there, mm-hmm. it means that maybe the water was covering it, but it all over. And then say, once the water receded, Okay, so let me just tell you how I handle almost any theory about this. I simply uh, handle any theory about anything the same way. So if you came to me and said, I think this is our suspect over here, I'm simply going to ask you to make your case. Make the case for that suspect. And if the case is strong enough, I'm going to agree with you. Whatever suspect I think I might have in view, I might even abandon if your case seems stronger to me. So I, I, I always distinguish between, we talked about this yesterday, I distinguish between what's possible and what's reasonable. So if you were to ask me, isn't it, doesn't this possibly mean that this was your, I would say, yes, of course it, hang on. Yes, it does possibly mean this. 
But I'm really not interested in what's possible. I'm only interested in what's reasonable. That's a whole other thing. So if you say, isn't it possible that really when this water recedes, it's exposing something that had been seeded prior? Yes, but I see no evidence for such thing. And therefore, it's a possibility, not a reasonability. But then say, then say it comes to the beginning of the life. Yes. How you make life. How do you make life? I mean, you have to make a cell. Okay? Right. You have to make a cell. Yeah. And that, and that what becomes very, very difficult. Mm-hmm. How should I say? It's not only say that you would have a, a DNA or RNA to produce that. Right. Because those are just, you have a, lot, a virus, which is a DNA and, and a, or RNA. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay, in order to reproduce themselves, they have to have a cell, uh, the mechanism of a cell. Okay. So, therefore, that's based on that thing I'm saying, okay, this thing receives Well, it sounds like what we're doing is it's, it's easier for us to struggle to try to think about what form of natural process could get this to happen. But of course, as theists, I don't accept that any natural process can get this to happen. So I'm not trying to figure out, well, how could the waters recede in such a way so this can come about through some natural process? I actually believe there's a being out there that I would call all-powerful. What that means is that he has all the power. The power to do things that I can't explain through natural processes. And so I think that you would have a very difficult time, even under the scenario that you've offered. I would challenge you to find any way to ever get any life from non-life through any series of events that you can think in your mind through any series of RNA change, which really, if you've watched the science in the last two years, the RNA world is far more complex than anyone ever thought it was. And so what's happened is it's kind of fallen on its own sword. We're looking for a way to explain how the RNA world emerges. It cannot be the explanation for how DNA emerges. It's fraught with the same problems. So here's my my whole whole point on that, is that I'm very careful not to find myself trying to figure out what natural process could do it. If we believe this God does exist, then we've got a solution to the problem. Now, you might say, well, that's just too easy. You just want to jump to your magic, you know, your magic genie. Well, the point is, if, if we, some of us, look, at some point, we have to jump to something that is supranatural in the sense that we believe nature is all science, I mean, sorry, all space, time, and matter. Those are the things that make up the natural world. Yet, whatever starts this natural world cannot be of the same stuff. Nothing begets itself. So, and if that happens, we're, we're in a scary world. If you think you can actually, things can just jump into existence, we should be like flinching a lot because you never know what's going to happen next. So the point is, I think that our experience tells us this is true. So whatever it is that begins this thing cannot itself be spatial, temporal, or material, which means if nothing else, we have to agree it's outside of nature. It is extra-natural or supra-natural, or even, if it has power, supernatural. And that's where I think we end up with a supernatural explanation for things that trouble us from a natural perspective. And it's not because I'm running to that. It's because it seems to me that all good thinking brings me to something supernatural to explain the beginning of everything that we say is natural. And if that God exists, if that thing exists, the thing that could bring everything from nothing, I'm not going to quibble about if that person could walk on water or feed 5,000 or cure a leper or arise from the dead. The biggest miracle that God ever did is in Genesis 1. If he can do that, the rest of this stuff is child's play. We'll come back to that some more on that in a second. Go. About time, I always have a struggle with that. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if you could put in a simple way to get my head to wrap around that. Time is 
primarily was. I mean, we started measuring it at the creation. Right. We said, you know, um, it was the beginning of space, time, matter. Yes. But God always was, and we're going to be in heaven forever. And that's supposed to be comforting, and it is, but, it, but in my mind, it always It's mind-blowing. Huh? Okay, so let's, let's, let's stretch our minds even more. So we just started measuring time, but time always was. So well, no, 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 no. We didn't just start measuring time, but time always was. Time begins at the point at which the universe begins. It is the beginning of all space, time, and matter. It's tough because we have to use language that, be, that is hard to wrap our hands around this idea. So for example, we'll say before time began. But before is a temporal word. It inclines that you're in time even before there was time. You can't be in time before there is time. So God is, is, is atemporal, but I think like William Lane Craig would argue, I believe that he's right. I think that what happens is that God is an eternal, atemporal being who then is in time with us at the point of creation. He is now in time with us. But here's the theory, about, a couple of theories about time. There's two theories of time, as you probably know. I mean, you don't know. A theory of time and the B theory of time. A theory of time is what's known as tensed time. It's the idea that there is a past we cannot revisit. It's behind us. A present we experience today. And a future that is not yet. And we're in tenses. The B theory of time is very different. B theory of time is kind of like a map in which you open the map and you can see Chicago and you can see, you can see Los Angeles and you can see New York as places on the map and the past, the present, and the future are kind of like places on the map. They're not in tense, like in a string, one after the other, but instead all exist at the same time. <laughs> like the points on your map all exist at the same time. That make sense? It's called B theory. So the idea you could travel through time really is an impossibility in the A theory of time. But if the B theory of time is correct, then you could time travel. Which if you want a Star Trek reason why I don't believe in B theory of time, I'll tell you why. If B theory of time is true, and I could travel in time, I should eventually, if given enough time, I should be able to travel in time. Because it is possible in B theory. Well, if that's the case, someplace in the distant future, which is also on the same map as where I am right now, somebody should have been able to travel back in time and tell me it's true. It hasn't happened. So I'm not inclined to think it's possible. I think that really, honestly, it's, it's a silly way of saying that our practical experience is of a sensed experience of time. That things happen in the past, and they click along, and we get to the present, we are here, we're experiencing, there's a nowness about our experience of time, and there's a future that's yet unknown. And so when we're talking about the beginning of time, we're saying that there is simply a point at which all time begins, and at that point, God is with us in time. But prior to that, there is no time for God to be in. Make sense? Now, what we tend to do in talks like this is try to make simple things that we really don't know. They're mysterious. If God is really this easy to describe that someone like dumb as me can actually do it, we got a pretty small God. Really, God is so mysterious that the most I can do is offer some silly analogies to try to help you work it through, but in reality, I hope he's a lot more mysterious than that. I hope I'm going to get to heaven and God's going to show me a bunch about the zillion ways I was really wrong. And I thought long and hard about these things, and I was so sure of myself, and I was way off. God's going to surprise us, for sure. We have about 10 more minutes we can talk about questions if you've got more to throw them out. Any objections you're hearing from people in your world, things you don't want to cover, Go. What did I, 
I, well, no one really knows what Maseroth is. And I have read a lot about uh, using the, the Hebrew language that maybe it's just an idea of talking about constellations in general. You know, but I think the way you see it in the third position of a series of constellations, I just have a hard time accepting that. If it was in the first position or the last position, then I think you could kind of summarize these are the constellations or the constellations are this. <laughs> then it would be in the right place. But in the third of a list of four, I think he's talking about another constellation that we just don't know by that name. It's some other constellation that we've given a different name since and we don't know what it is. And that's what I think it is. Let's look at it again. Yeah, let's take a look at it again real quick. I think we can. Oh, actually, I may, I may, uh, I may have been turned off. Let's see. Oh, no, actually, I'm turned off. Okay, so let's go back. And see if we can, oh, here we go, hang on, we're getting there. Nothing like showing you your, oh, here we go. Bring forth the Maseroth in his season. If I had to guess, this is going to be Taurus. If I had to guess, it's Taurus. Because Taurus is the one constellation that during the vernal equinox actually dips below the horizon for a season and then comes back up. So if I had to guess it, but that, that just means it's something you could see from the ground, and that makes sense, right? So even if it was Taurus, it wouldn't be all that spectacular because even the Mithras worshippers, now I don't know anything about Mithras, but when I first went to Berkeley with my students, uh, the first atheist we had come speak to our group really pumped on this idea that Jesus was simply a recreation of prior mythologies and he really hit it with Mithras because Mithras, you know, was born of a virgin, star announced his birth, attended by shepherds and and, uh, wise men, uh, had 12 disciples, taught a sermon on the mount, sacrificed his life to save many. Uh, Lord's Supper was actually performed in his, um, to celebrate him for after he uh, rose from the dead. Sounds like Jesus, huh? But it's a Persian mythology that is about 400 years prior to Jesus. So if your students are hearing that for the first time in college, it's like, oh my gosh, there wasn't everything to Jesus to begin with. This is just a recreation of prior mythologies. Now, if you actually do the hard work of going to the original sources, which are very expensive, but they're worth buying, you'll see that none of that is even true about Mithras. He's not born of a virgin. He emerged from the side of a mountain, leaving a cave where he emerged. So you could say he's born of a virgin in the sense he's kind of like, like, it wasn't like through a natural process of conception, I guess. In some way, you might be able to stretch that. And they'll say he was born in a cave, you know, well, because he leaves a cave as he emerges from the side. I mean, there's, you can do all kinds of crazy things. Did he have 12 disciples? No, but he's typically pictured with the uh, astrological signs around him, and there are 12 of those. So, I mean, there's all kinds of crazy things you can do to make him sound like Jesus, right? But he's, he's nothing like Jesus at all. Now, why don't I even start with that stupid story? What was our first question, Jason? Well, I was going to, uh, I like the Right, yeah. Well, there's lots of ways we might anticipate a Jesus figure, and we might describe him, or we begin to describe God or describe Jesus before he gets here, the same way there's a book that he's referring to that my son discovered by accident, and we had this thing called uh, the Bathroom Reader, <laughs> and it has like a Ripley's Believe It or Not section in it, you know, where you can read through all these cool stories, so my teenage son says, Pap, check out this crazy story. So he comes out, and he says, here, look at this. There was actually a book written called the futility, or the, the actually it's called, uh, it's called futility, but it's got a boat in it. It's the story about a huge ocean liner that is built called the Titan. 
that uh, hits an iceberg on its maiden voyage and sinks. It's about the same dimension as the Titanic. It's got the same number of boats as the Titanic. It's written 12 years before the Titanic was finished. So he told me about it. I told Greg Kokel about it. Now everyone on the radio is talking about this thing. Well, he discovered it in the stupid bathroom reader. I'm just telling you right now. But what's interesting about it is that how would this guy know about it? Also, he wrote another book similar to this a couple of years later about a world war in which the United States drops these smart bombs, these not smart bombs, like these sun, sun bombs on major cities and destroys them, you know, like an atomic weapon. This is long before we ever had atomic weapons. So this guy was pretty uh, prophetic in his writing, right? But a lot of it's because he's in a situation in England where he's in a culture of, of shipbuilding that's just started, it's a couple of years into it, and he's envisioning where this might lead. And he happens to get some facts right. But if you discovered the futility a thousand years from now, you could doubt that the Titanic was ever really a real boat because this story seems to predate the Titanic and is using a very similar name, the Titan. So the idea that some story might precede any story does not necessarily negate the story we're, look, we're looking at. So it's important for us to kind of keep that in mind. Now, but why do we start talking about Mithras to begin with? Oh, it makes me so crazy. You remember what it was? Oh, yes, Taurus. Thank you. Ah, you're so good. 20, you know, 15 years ago, I could, re- I, have a, I could remember all that stuff. Now I'm like fishing for things. But yeah, I think what you discover with uh, Mithras is that Mithras, the best reasoning for Mithras is that Mithras is a star constellation worshiping. These, these folks, uh, there's another constellation called Persis, and Persis is right above Taurus, and almost every image of Mithras, by the way, the reason why we struggle with this is because there is no scripture for Mithraic religion. There's no scripture for Mithras. All we have are paintings and sculptures and stories from the early Christians who were complaining about them copying the Lord's Supper. <laughs> okay, so we have that. So if you look at what it seems to be is that Persis is sitting on top of Taurus the same way that Mithras is on top of the bull and all the statues. And twice a year, it looks like Persis is pushing Taurus down below the horizon because of the tilt of the earth. And then Taurus emerges again. And Persis beats him down again next spring. And so this rising and dying of this, uh, uh, this star constellation is sometimes, I think, is probably the best explanation for what Mithras was all about to begin with. So if I had to guess, this is probably Taurus because that's the bull that sinks below in its season. It's always defeated and then it comes back to life in the spring. Okay, now we are down to five minutes. We have one more question. Go. Mm-hmm. No, you know, I never, it is, that's never bothered me. But maybe because I've been lucky and I haven't really experienced the kind of pain that a lot of you in this room have experienced. And so the problem of evil is a tough one. And you have a tendency, and I was a, a cop for a long time before I became a believer. So I'd already gone through that process of dehumanizing the people I came to my crime scenes. You don't go to crime scenes and go, oh my gosh, that poor, I mean, I go to crime scenes where a, guy, one, where a four-year-old was shot in the forehead by his dad. So you get there and you can really start to kind of be troubled by it or you can get there and realize that's not, a, that person's gone. That's just a body. And so cops have a tendency to really quickly dehumanize everything at the scene or you're going to be troubled by it. You're either going to drink it out or you're going to dehumanize it before you start. So it's just a body like a mannequin, you know, you can touch it, you can move it around, you can roll it over, you can do all these things and it's not going to bother you because it's not real. It's not a human. When you go to autopsies, you cannot pretend like those are real humans. They are. They're bodies. But man, if you started thinking that way, you go nuts. They don't have a soul. But I didn't have a Christian kind of perspective to rest on. 
So by the time I got to being a Christian, I, didn't really str- I never really struggled with that problem of pain. But I think for a lot of people, that's, the problem of evil is really a tough one to overcome. And I think that's, I noticed uh, recently, I, I blog every day at coldcasechristianity.com. I mean, I blog every day. And I did a series about uh, maybe a month ago on the problem of evil. And I couldn't believe the number of responses I got. I keep on forgetting that that's really a big deal for a lot of people. Even though it may not be a big deal for me. It's a big deal for a lot of people. It keeps them away from believing this is true. And if you look at, like, uh, we talked yesterday about uh, Bart Ehrman. We talked about why Bart Ehrman might be somebody who's willing to reject what he sees in Scripture. But it's just so it's not, not coincidence that the one book he's written outside of textual Christianity